0: Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity, what we're calling House Church. So glad that you can join us. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of our church. If you're joining us for the first time, a special welcome to you. This is an easy time to check out communities and maybe to check out what Trinity is about and and maybe a friend or a coworker or a neighbor has invited you. So we're really excited that you can be a part of this. For anybody who's outside of Christianity peeking in, sometimes coming to a church on a Sunday is a daunting thing. We know that. It takes a lot of courage to be able to step into church, and sometimes you're just not ready to take that step. So if you're listening to this, most likely at home or maybe on a podcast, we hope that this can be a way for you to explore the heartbeat of Christianity, this thing that we're going to talk about today called the gospel, the good news, and you can do it from home. You can do it in safety, but we do hope that you can uh, maybe have some conversation partners afterwards. Maybe it's that friend, or maybe it's somebody uh, else that you know that is a follower of Jesus. You can follow up and, and learn more, but we're glad that all of you can be here. If Trinity's home, welcome to you. We miss you. We wish that we were together on these Sundays, but while we're still apart, we're glad to gather. So We just started a new series that we've entitled, uh, Unlearning the Upside-Down Truths of the Sermon on the Mount. This is week three. We're in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. I'm going to read that for us. You can follow along on the screen, but let me jump into the reading, then I'll set it up for us, and we'll go from there. So from Matthew 5, verse 21, here's what we read. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word for us. The Sermon on the Mount is this compact Revolutionary part of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is unpacking the nature of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus sits down on a hill with this really diverse crew of people. Some of them are already followers. They want to be disciples of Jesus. Some people are figuring out if they want to follow Him. They've got questions. And then there are other people who are there on the hill with Him who are really just there for a free lunch. They're intrigued. They're interested. They've heard rumors. They don't want to follow Him, but they're sitting there and they're learning at the feet of Jesus. This really diverse crew In this unique moment where Jesus begins to unpack and to paint in both broad strokes and really specific strokes what it looks like to be a part of what he's calling the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God on earth right now. What we're calling this new way forward. Now, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're in a time where we're looking for new ways. We're looking for new answers. We're looking for ways to move forward. If you're outside of Christianity, considering the claims of Jesus, this might be a a perfect place for you to take a step forward and leaning into not only what Jesus said, but who Jesus is. This is important because of this. Number one, Jesus was an incredible teacher. These are incredible chapters. What he has to say about this way of life under the rule and the reign of God, truly it's revolutionary. It can change anything and everything. It can change anyone. So Jesus was the most brilliant human being to ever walk the face of the earth. But Christianity also teaches not only was a teacher, not only was he brilliant, but he was a king and a divine king at that. And a king who has an agenda for the flourishing of people, of communities, of neighborhoods, and of society. But in order to live into the picture, to step into the picture that Jesus is painting of this way of life in his kingdom, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. You've got to listen carefully. We've got to lean in. We've also got to pray that God would actually give us humility and uh, a grace to be able to step into things that are going to contradict what we actually believe. Jesus is a challenge. Jesus has things to say that are going to challenge us. And oftentimes, we want to step away from anybody who contradicts what I believe or what I want or what I say. But if you're going to have a real experience of Christianity, we have to pray for grace to be able to lean in and listens. If Jesus is not just a brilliant teacher, but he also happens to be the king of the entire universe, then maybe, just maybe, this man and this king has the right to challenge us. But what Christianity teaches is that he challenges us in order to restore us. And this is what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, a follower, someone who receives his teaching and then leans into the master and asks him for help in order to be able to live it out. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to notice that Jesus, he likes to burrow deep into the human personality, into the human psyche. And he does that because his ultimate goal is to expose the source of behaviors, the source of choices, and not just simply the symptoms. Critiquing behavior is one thing, but getting to the root of the behavior is an entirely different task. And today what Jesus is going to do, he's going to begin to dive into the human personality through a conversation around the theme of anger and looking at what anger has broken and learning how to fix it and then getting behind to this thing called the motivation for all of us. So anger and then the things that anger has broken and then the motive behind it. So I'm going to take you through three movements, pretty much the same thing that I just described. But number one, we're going to keep it simple. Point one is anger. Point two is restoration. And point three, I'm going to take you through the theme of honor and how that fits into anger. So anger, restoration, and honor. Let's jump in with part one with verse 21 again, if you want to read with me. Verse 21. Here's Jesus speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, when Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you can be sure that some unlearning is about to happen. Evidently, some of the local religious teachers have been unpacking some of the Old Testament law. In this case, they've zoomed in on the sixth of the Ten Commandments. This was the one that was uh, forbid, that forbid anybody from taking the life of somebody else. This is the particular commandment that forbid murder. Now, of course, the Ten Commandments were intended to be a blueprint for human flourishing, for the blueprint for a beautiful life, a vision of what it could look like to center and anchor upon God and love for him first, and then love for neighbor second. And so when Jesus hears the religious leaders describing what God required in loving their neighbor from the sixth commandment as limited to don't kill anyone, he essentially says, yes, sure, that's still all true. But let me show you what God intended when he wrote this law on the stone, and then he expands it. Look at verse 22. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's almost as if Jesus leans into this crowd and goes, Tell me about your love for your neighbors. And they kind of chime in and go, Well, Jesus, let me tell you something. We haven't murdered anyone today, we haven't killed anyone. And he goes, For real? I mean, that's your description of love of neighbor. Yeah, Jesus, we're keeping all the commandments. The sixth one says, don't kill. We haven't killed anybody today. It's kind of like asking a parent, tell me about your love for your monster. I mean, your children. And you say something like, well, we put food on the table and we give them a bed to sleep in. You kind of stop and you go, well, that's what love looks like. That's what love of neighbor looks like. You haven't killed anyone. (laughs) Human flourishing can't simply be monitored by not murdering another human being. So Jesus takes a deeper dive and he says, well, what about that anger that's boiling underneath the surface and so often comes out like a volcano? What about that deep-seated contempt, those angry insults, as he calls it? The word there is the word raka. What happens when you raka somebody? What happens when you dehumanize them Raka is, is, is in a sense where you go, man, you're not even worth my time. I would have an argument with you, but I actually don't even want to have an argument with you because you're not worth the breath that's going to come out of me. I'm going to raka you. I'm going to leave you on the sideline. I'm going to treat you as a non-human. He goes, I'm going to deep, there's this deep-seated con, um, discontent and contempt for the other person. He goes, that's raka. What happens when you do that to somebody? And what about all that condemning language that so often slips out of our mouths when we're angry and we say, you fool? There's a big picture that the Bible paints when it comes to the language of the fool. And see, what Jesus is saying is you may not have killed someone, But your anger is this destructive power that poisons and it destroys the fabric of relationships. And it leaves you just as liable to the judgment of hell as murder does. Man, this is what Jesus is saying. On the one hand, He's saying actions matter. Life ought to be preserved. The sixth commandment, absolutely, don't take anybody's life. But have you thought about what it's like when you murder somebody in your heart? And this is when, if you're new to Christianity, even if you've been a Christian for a while, you have to take a step back and go, Jesus isn't just concerned about outside observation of arbitrary rules and behaviors. He's not just into traditions for tradition's sake. He is into the heart. He wants your heart to be in it. He goes, yeah, yeah, you haven't murdered anybody, literally, but what about your heart? How about the way in which you speak to people or don't speak to people, the way in which you dehumanize them and leave them on the sidelines? Let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about your anger. In his book, Good and Angry, highly recommended by an author by the name of David Powlison. In Good and Angry, here's what Powlison writes. He says, in real life, anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and guns down classmates. It divides churches, turns friendship into enmity, and it erupts in road rage. You've never had that, right? Never in California. It is the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. <clears throat> the fact that some of us overreact in less colorful ways does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. In other words, if you're quiet, kind of keep it to yourself, you're not off the hook in any way. Anger is also the basic DNA of complaining, brooding, and bickering. Later, he goes on to say this anger does things, it appears in an accusatory word, sarcasm, Threats and curses. It adopts that tone of voice. Gestures and body language speak loudly, hitting the dashboard, giving a disgusted sigh, walking out of the room, raising the decibel level, rolling the eyes, scowling. You do anger with all that you are, and you do it as an interaction. And maybe the most helpful thing that he writes and that resonated with me, and maybe with you, is what he says every one of us gets angry and every one of us has a hard time changing. Every one of us gets angry, and every single one of us has a hard time changing. And Jesus seems to be saying that unless we deal with our anger, we're going to destroy community, we're going to forfeit joy in the kingdom, and we're going to be on a course towards real judgment. And before I move on to part two about restoring, let me just break down what anger actually is. Anger has been called the moral emotion. I like that. Anger has been called the moral emotion because it makes a statement about what actually matters. Maybe more specifically, anger is the way we react when we think it is important. When we think something that's important is not the way it's supposed to be. In other words, you see something that doesn't seem quite right, it should be different in your mind and in your experience, and so you react to it. You have a reaction. You see something. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You care about the way it's supposed to be, and so you react. Maybe said in a really succinct way, anger expresses, I'm against that. Anger always expresses, I'm against that. Let's take quarantine, for example. Quarantine is not, anything that, it's not something that any of us would have chosen. Some of you have gotten angry about quarantine. See, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we express ourselves, we view it, we care, and we get angry. In fact, anger is one of the stages of grief. I think it's stage number two. Anger matters, especially when we're in a season of grief. You're going to bump up against anger in different ways. So quarantine certainly has exposed certain levels and layers of anger. You ever woken up to children who are arguing? My kids did today. What? Um, Waking up to children who are arguing makes you angry. How come? Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. What you are saying in your spirit and usually with your mouth is, I'm against this. This is not what I want. How about children who decide, man, I'm not going to eat that what's on my plate. Children see I have a big plate of veggies. They essentially go, I'm angry because I'm against that. I want ice cream. I'm against it. How about adults who don't want to eat their veggies? They essentially get angry and go, I'm against that. How about people who have too much in their grocery cart when you're at Vaughn's and you get in line and you're just trying to figure out which line you're going to check out of. You look at their cart, you look at that cart, you look at that line, you're evaluating which one you're going to get into so you can get out as quickly as possible. And you look at their cart and you get frustrated and angry because you go, Man, you have so much. I've got three things. I just want to get in and out. So what you're essentially saying is, I'm against that. You make a value statement, you make a judgment. I care, I guess, about time and productivity and so I get angry. What about politics and politicians? Let's not even get started on that. Whether you find yourself on the left or the right, anger is a part of our reactions because when we view the other, pol- the other policies, us essentially what we say is, I'm against that. And so you would get angry. How about people who don't recycle or people who spend money in ways that you perceive as frivolous? People who drive too slow Road rage. How about college tuition bills? Social media comments. Children who don't perform the way that we want them to so that they make us look like model parents. We get angry. What we're essentially saying is, I'm against that. Or what about a spouse that no longer makes us feel happy? We get angry. We essentially say, I'm against that. In an incredible, incredibly insightful article by Charles Duhigg entitled, The Real Roots of American Rage, he writes, America has always been an angry nation. We are a country born of revolution. Combat on battlefields and newspapers at the ballot box has been with us from the start. American history is punctuated by episodes in which aggrieved parties have settled their differences, not through conversation, but with guns. Recently, however, the tenor of our anger has shifted. It has become less episodic and more persistent, a consistent drumbeat in our lives. He says anger has become a consistent drumbeat in American culture. And Jesus is saying that anger is such an important emotion to identify and to dissect. Our anger is crushing people and it's crushing us if we hold it, if we harbor it. Man, anger can be quick, it can be manipulative, and it can be abusive. And yes, of course, there is room for righteous anger. But We ought to be angry about the things that really do matter. The Me Too movement that we've all been exposed to and the Black Lives Matter movement are examples of actions that are giving voice to people, women and people of color, and in particular, the black community. It's giving them voice. It's giving them the opportunity to express themselves, People and groups who for too long have not been given the right, who have been denied the right to express themselves, in particular their emotions, and in particular maybe their anger. See, but Jesus is not here addressing justified anger. There are other places that we can go to for that. But what he's saying is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin or at injustice, but at, at offenses that are pushed towards me. See, anger has to do with me, my pride, my ego, my pain, and my past. All of these things drive our anger. And Jesus says that love for neighbor doesn't come simply through not taking their life, but it comes through the end of anger and the end of content. And so, let me take you to part two. Part two on restoration, fixing what anger has broken. Glance again at verse 23. Now, before I jump on on this concept of restoring what anger has fixed, let me say this. I think it's important to mention that Christianity in general, <clears throat> and Jesus in particular, does not mandate reconciliation and restoration in any and every circumstance. It's pretty clear as you read the scriptures that there are circumstances like adultery, where an individual is not uh, mandated or required to go and restore and fix and reconcile. That's a hugely significant and sensitive situation. But this is not a whitewashing of everything that's been broken, every relationship that's ever wounded an individual. This is not Christianity saying, you got to go and fix it. Specifically, Jesus is not encouraging us or requiring us to simply roll over and to give in to the demands of people who victimize us. You see, protecting the vulnerable from abuse of all forms. Is this critical task for the church. There are sensitive cases that need a lot of counsel and need a lot of wisdom before an action step is encouraged. But what Jesus has in mind in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount are those day-to-day experiences of anger and bitterness and contempt, what Jesus calls that word raka, right? That dehumanizing, going, man, you're not even worth my time. And what he is saying is, do everything within your creative power to urgently fix what anger has broken. That's what he's saying. Do everything within your creative power to urgently fix what anger has broken. And he uses two illustrations. One from the temple and then the other one from the courts. And I'm going to focus primarily on that first one. The one from the temple. Jesus essentially is saying, he says, imagine that you brought your family to worship and it's your moment, it's your week. You've been waiting for this all year. You get to go through the different rings and the different layers of the temple. You get to go see the priest. You're about to make your offering. You are at the altar. You don't get to the altar every week. This is a big deal. And he goes, you, you're at the altar, you're about to make the sacrifice, and then somebody comes to mind, and you remember that there is this animosity, there's anger, there's bitterness that's built up between the two of you. He goes, yeah, I know you're in an important moment. I know you've been waiting all year for this. I know you've got family and friends, they've all gathered around you, but you got to go. You need to get up and leave. You need to go and fix the situation. You need to go have a conversation. You need to reconcile and restore the thing that's been broken. This has got to be one of the coolest things about Jesus. I mean, Jesus is a rock star. This is one of the things that if you're outside of Christianity looking in, you go, man, this guy's not narrow. This guy's not all about come and worship. This is a guy who goes, I want you to leave worship. I want you to leave the temple. I want you to go out. I want you to engage with an individual that's got bitterness between you and them. Go and fix it. And when you fixed it, come back. He goes, reconciliation between people is so much more important than kind of arbitrary duty. Don't just go through the motions. If you feel something going on in your heart, pack up, leave, go remedy what's going on, go restore it, go fix it. Whole nother sermon on how to do that. But the principle of restoration still stands. Jesus is essentially saying, sacrifices don't honor me, but forgiveness does. I don't want your lamb, man. I want your heart. There are other things that Jesus cares about. Get up, go, fix what anger has damaged and then come back. Maybe in modern context, the easiest way for us to understand this is pretend you're a bride or groom at a wedding. It is your wedding. You look behind you and you got friends, you got family, you got pomp, you got circumstance. It is one of the most important days of your life. And you're standing there at the altar about the exchange rings. And Jesus says, if somebody comes to mind and you realize that there's bitterness between you and another friend, he says, stop the ceremony. Go fix it right now. You can come back another day, another time, maybe later in the day, but you got to go and fix this right now. There's this creative urgency and tug to go fix and restore that which anger has broken within Christianity. Desmond Tutu, who led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in post-apartheid South Africa, an incredible leader, here's what he wrote. He says, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It is not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the pain, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end it is worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can bring only superficial healing. Powerful, powerful quote. We've all got broken relationships. What does it look like for you to restore? How do you get the power for it? How do you get the motivation to go and engage with that person who has hurt you or you have hurt them? And there's been time and distance and separation, but they've always been tugging on your heart. It's kind of like this gnawing thing that you know that you need to go and engage with, but you just haven't wanted to. And maybe in this moment, Jesus is going to push you forward. Maybe he'll push you forward after this last part. Part three, anger, restoring what anger has broken, restoration. And then part three, this theme of honor, okay? Theme of honor. We live in a rage culture. We live in an angry culture. We live in a divided culture. And what Jesus is really emphasizing is an honor culture. That's what he's pushing us towards. The whole conversation about anger hinges on the Bible's understanding of human dignity. It is about the value of persons. And obviously, merely not killing someone cannot do justice to that. Jesus's vision of the kingdom is so much better than that. Radical agape love is a whole lot more than not killing. It is respect, it is value, and it is honor. See, and it's honor that refuses to dehumanize someone. And if they have been knocked down in the dirt to demand that they not stay there, but to pick them up and to reconcile and to heal and to not, even if they've been judged in the court of contempt to say, you're not going to stay there, we're going to bring you up and we're going to bring you out. It's an incredible love that says that you are worth reconciling. You have honor. And secondly, see, the gospel is reconciliation. You hear that? Not just it's about reconciliation, but the gospel is reconciliation. See, to not love and to not honor and to not restore broken relationships is to completely misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's about. We are followers and apprentices of a king who left the altar because he knew that there was tension He could have stayed at the altar. He was comfortable at the altar. He could have stayed in heaven. It's much easier there. But he stepped out. He knew that there was tension between us and him. And he went and remedied it. He went and fixed it. And he knew it was going to be a costly trip. He knew it was going to cost him everything. And so Jesus comes into planet earth in order to fix, to heal, to reconcile, and to restore. See, the gospel is reconciliation. And if I'm an apprentice of Jesus, then I'm going to follow his lead. I'm going to do what he does. I'm going to live as he lives. Not so I can get his attention, not so he can reconcile me, but because I've been restored, because he has healed me, because he has extended that kind of love. See, when we should have been rocked by Jesus, when we should have been left on the sidelines and completely ignored, he came rushing for us. And Because our king did that. Because he's treated us with tremendous honor. That's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to do that for other people couple of questions for you, and then I'm going to wrap up with a brief story. In quarantine, I recently heard somebody say, as they were, uh, I attended a conference last week, and there was a little section of prayer. One of the presenters prayed, Lord, in quarantine, we're recognizing that God has brought us home in order to restore home. Listen to that phrase. God has brought us home in order to restore home. What well, part of your life what part of your extended relationships need deep restoring? Where has anger weaved its way into your soul and into your relationships? Where has bitterness taken root? And friends, you may be the victim in the relationship. You may be the one who is a recipient of somebody else's pain, somebody else's poison, but in what way is anger beginning to derail your life Jesus says it's not enough just to say, I haven't killed somebody. He goes, but if you're harboring deep anger, deep uh, d- discontent, um, malice, bitterness, anger, it's going to ruin you. And you're not going to get to experience the fullness of the life that Jesus promises us in his kingdom. Where has anger weaved its way into your soul? And are there individuals who are coming to mind in the season of slowing down that you've just kind of pushed off and pushed off and ignored, but maybe God is starting to say, you know what, these are people I want you to reach out to and reconciliation might just be in your future. Who are those people? And anger is such a quiet conversation. It's not a quiet emotion. But it's certainly a quiet conversation. I don't know if the last time somebody came to me and said, I struggle with anger. But I want to raise my hand and say, I struggle with anger. I didn't know I struggle with anger. But see, what David Powell said, I quoted him earlier, said, anger can be quiet, anger can be loud, anger can be emotional, it can be an outburst, it can be a volcano, but it can be a slow simmer. But the reality is it crushes us and it crushes people. In what way is God exposing our anger? After Jesus talks about the Beatitudes and the encouragement to be salt and light, when he starts painting a picture of a radically new society, he goes right for anger. This is part one. He's talking about, you got to get rid of the contempt. You got to get rid of the anger. I can help you. Come to the master, right? Come to Jesus and let him weave his grace into your life. Brief story of how God has done this recently in my life. Uh, when When we left Boston, we came to San Diego. There was, uh, there was some hurt and there was some pain. And we spent 11 years in an incredible city and we loved the city. And I had a bit of a fallout with one of my dear friends and a mentor of mine. And so we landed in San Diego with, with hurt and with pain. And it took us a while to be able to process it, to be able to name it, and to enter into those stages of grieving and to work through the differences, work through the differences not only of coasts, but of new community, new family, um, and, and just trying to figure out how life was going to move forward in this new season. Uh, there was pain, and there was anger that built up, but through the years, not just days or weeks, but through the years as I thought about that person, yeah, I reached out to them in different ways and at different moments, kind of text messages here and happy birthdays there, but there was still kind of a rift in our relationship, and I felt God saying, write this mentor letter, write him a letter. You've got a lot to say. And so I took my time. Literally, I took a couple of years to figure out when and where would be the right time to do it. But before we launched Trinity, I believe it was the summer of probably uh, 2018, I felt God tugging me to write this letter. And so I wrote the letter to my friend and to my mentor, and I sent it on to him, and then I immediately heard back. But the point of the letter was not to rehearse our past. What I felt God saying to me was, I want you to take ownership of your part of the problem. There's two, two parties here, but I want you to own your part of the problem, to apologize, to reconcile, and to get rid of any anger that's residual. And so I did. So I wrote him a long letter. A couple of days later, I got a very kind response. that said, of course I forgive you. Thank you so much for the letter. By the way, I'm going to be in Southern California uh, for a conference. And so if you want to come up to LA, if you're going to attend that conference, I'd love to see you. I'm going to make a really long story short by saying I attended the conference and I got to spend essentially the entire time with this friend. And we didn't nail, we didn't go directly into the conversation and try to rehearse our past. But on day two, after we'd spent literally hours together the first day, Anytime he wasn't presenting, anytime he wasn't speaking, I was right there with him. I was his right-hand man. We we're having conversations about planting this church called Trinity, and he's telling me about Boston. We were kind of just uh, renewing our friendship and going deep into some of the time lost. But on day two, we're going to get coffee, and I will not ever forget this moment where he put his arm around me and he said, hey, when you wrote me that letter a couple of months ago and I received it, he said, it made me cry. I said, it did. And I, and I said, um, I meant every single word that I wrote you. You're a Paul in my life. I hope that I can be a Timothy in your life. And he said, yeah, we've, we've had a great run, haven't we? We had a great run. He said, we hit a few bumps. I said, we did. I said, but God is restoring it. God is reconciling it. And he said, he is. And I left that conference more joyful, more light, more filled with grace and hope than I've ever felt. This is what the gospel can do. We don't have to live unreconciled, angry, bitter lives. We can experience the renewal of the gospel, and maybe it takes you time like it did for this particular story, but maybe in the day-to-day and the little things, you got to bump, you got to go right into it. You got to deal with it. You got to call that person. It could be a husband or a wife. could be a child. Sit with them and simply say, I love you. I'm sorry. God has put this on my life. I've been harboring a ton of bitterness, but he's going to take it because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is reconciliation. What an incredible God we serve. We serve him together. If you want to have a conversation about this and go deeper, let us know. You're not alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to go into your, your story, your teaching, the sermon Thank you for the men and women who heard it the first time, and I thank you as this is being preached that men and women get to hear it thousands of years later. And certainly there was a diverse audience when you preached it, and there's a diverse audience today. Some who say, I follow you, Jesus. Some who are trying to figure it out, and some are saying, I'm not really that interested. But I pray you'd spark all of us. I pray you'd help us to take a next step forward. We are looking for a new way, a different way to live our lives. And the truth of the gospel, the reality of the King and the promise of life in His kingdom is what we're really yearning for. So I pray as we consider anger, as we consider animosity and bitterness, pray You'd heal us and forgive us. I pray You'd soften it in my life and my friends' lives. And I pray You'd lead us to be restored from all of the things that anger has broken. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.